Welcome to a Fountain City History audio walking tour led by Dr. J.C. Tumblin, hosted by Fountain City Town Hall and produced by Knox County Public Library. On the podcast page, you can find the walking tour booklet with a map of the tour, plus the illustrations to accompany Dr. Tumblin's remarks. This walk was recorded on September 14, 2009. It's uh, my honor to introduce to you a very special man who has tremendous knowledge about Fountain City and really needs no introduction. He has written two books about Fountain City, and if you have not read them and don't own a copy, I suggest you get one. There is a wealth of information. You'll be glad you did. Great pictures. He does more research than anybody in the region, I think. And uh, he's practiced optometry here for many years, and many of you may know him that way. We're very, very glad that he's consented to do this walk again through Fountain City. If you were here in the uh, spring when they did it, uh, we did not have a PA system, and you may not have been able to hear. Tonight, we're in hopes that you'll be able to hear every single word because it's well worth hearing. We have a lady from the uh, library to do a podcast for us so that we'll have this preserved. And one of our board members is going to make a video of it so that hopefully we'll get the whole thing on, on tape. So uh, without further ado, it's Dr. Tony. Thanks, Jamie, for that introduction. I think maybe uh, giving me credit for any Fountain City history is somewhat over the top. The real Fountain City history is Nanny Lee Hicks. This is the fourth edition of Nanny Lee Hicks' little book, published first in 1968, and it's the definitive history of Fountain City. Mine is the photographic history of Fountain City. And I guess the highest compliment I got about my book had been out a couple of weeks and a high school classmate of mine from the class of 1944. Sounds like ancient history, doesn't it, Michael? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Called me and he said, Jim, I, I just really love your new book. I put it on my night table. I pick it up at night and I read a couple of pages and I'm just fast asleep. <laughs> it's just really been a good thing to have, he said. Nanny Hicks was an American history teacher at Central High School for something like 40 years. And she, well before uh, the Firefox people in North Georgia, decided many years ago that she would ask her senior history students to write a, I think, a thousand word theme before that year was out. And it had to uh, be an interview with their grandparents or with them. Uh, senior pastor at their church or with somebody in the community that had a, a view of what happened in the past in Fountain City and Inverance. So Natalie Hicks collected all those essays over more than 20 years and compiled them into this book, of course adding a considerable amount of her own to it. But uh, I think a tribute should be paid that. Uh, I don't know any other Knoxville community that has this kind of history. There is one for uh, Westview, there is one for uh, Sequoia Hills, but ours is better, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) The um, Fountain City book depends on the photographs that I've been able to compile. 
I sat in a little back room down there in that building you can see from here, the formerly the station building, a little 10 by 20 foot room, and most of my day consisted in asking which is better, number one or number two. <laughs> I'm a retired eye doctor. My wife said sometimes I'd wake her up in the middle of the night, which is better, number one or number two. So. <laughs> At any rate, it gave me an opportunity way back there to uh, talk to people in Fountain City who had been here, seemed like forever. People like Ms. Williams that owned the Williams Mansion. People like Smut Smith, who's only two years older than I am, but seems to know more history than I do. And it was an interesting opportunity to ask them, many, many of them, uh, do you have photographs that should be a part of Fountain City's history? And I was able to collect quite a few of them. So when you see the book, you'll see them. And I think during the walk, there'll be some of them. Uh, maybe our most famous institution and that's kind of unusual, too. Uh, my good friends always ask me why my office was at the end of the dummy line. And uh, I guess there are two possible explanations. A dummy, uh, technically, Webster's on a bridge says, is a locomotive, but it's camouflaged so it won't look like one or sound like one. This uh, strange locomotive ran uh, along the side of the road where wagons series people on horseback were riding and you can imagine all that hissing steam and churning pistons and so forth why it might spook a horse and evidently it did so they dummied up the engine so it wouldn't look that way the other theory and the one my high school classmates subscribed to is they were clairvoyant and they, they knew there would be a dummy sitting at the end of the dummy line many years later so they named it after me they say I deny it whatever now, one of the most important uh, Fountain City developments was the Fountainhead Hotel. So I think we ought to move to our first stop, which is just over here beyond the uh, utility building, to talk about the Fountain City Hotel. The iron pipe you see coming out of the ground behind me here probably was connected to the Fountainhead Hotel at least if you look in your book, that's on page uh, one, photograph number one. The walk that connected uh, the park to the hotel ran right through there. You can get a pretty good picture of how it looked uh, from that black and white picture. So it did sit right on top of the hill just behind me. And it was here because this had become a gathering place as early as 1830. This 12-acre uh, park was a Methodist religious campground. Not long after the Cane Ridge Revival, evidently, because there are records dating back as far as 1830, showing that uh, there were religious campground was right here in this park. They uh, would come for a week. They'd bring wagons with provisions enough to uh, feed the family for a week, camp out in tents and in their wagons. And uh, eventually, a grandson of John Sevier, Reverend uh, Reverend E.F. Severe held a camp meeting here and began a congregation of the Methodist Church, which we're going to stop here just a little bit later. I want you to realize that uh, for its time, this hotel, 50-room hotel, was quite an attraction. We're going to talk in a little bit about uh, Colonel J.C. Woodward, who moved here from Lexington, Kentucky, bought the hotel, which had already been built, 
and markedly refurbished it. Fenced in the park so he could charge uh, admission and keep people out who didn't pay admission and uh, made it important enough that other people founded the dummy line so they could carry the passengers out here more readily. So it was quite an operation for its time. In fact, uh, those I've talked to about it think that Montvale Springs being way over in Maryville, Blount County, and uh, nothing else quite so close, it may have been the destination place in East Tennessee. Well before, of course, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and well before Gatlinburg, and well before Dollywood, those other present-day attractions. So let's walk now up the hill to the side of the hotel. Has anybody found a $2 a night hotel room lately? <laughs> Pretty prestigious looking place, isn't it? Three stories. Notice the crow's nest. Does it show on your... It does. Can you imagine standing in that crow's nest or one of those upper balconies, looking back toward Fountain City, seeing a scene like this? What's that built one part building? That's the Oddfellas Hall. We're going to talk about it in a little while. This is the back of the hotel here, and this is the Oddfellas Hall, which is across the street from the Baptist Church. But imagine what a beautiful view that was. You can even see Greenway Gap here. In the picture, and of course, the beautiful forested area. It's all right to pass these around if you'd like. Picture yourself about 1885. Your best girlfriend, hand in hand, you've had dinner at the uh, Fountainhead Hotel, later the Fountain City Hotel, when they changed the name of Fountain City to Fountain City. 50 cent meal by uh, one of the more famous chefs in town who had been the chef at the Atkin Hotel. Mary Donahue was her name. Five or six course meal. After dinner, uh, you pick up the check, 50 cents a head a dollar for a beautiful meal. And you follow Professor Giuliano, Giuliano, however, not quite Rudy Giuliani, but close, who had an Italian band. Who in the crowd knows what an Italian band was? What made it distinguished from another type of a band? Mandolin. How about the concertina? I think the mandolin too, though, come to think of it. Yeah, that high-pitched sound. When I can amplify it sufficiently, uh, Dr. Sarah Kane provided me a wonderful recording of Come Back to Sorrento. Sometime uh, YouTube Come Back to Sorrento and see if you don't get some of the more uh, delightful sounds. So can you imagine uh, you've had this beautiful meal, you're hand in hand with your best girlfriend and you're walking down those steps behind the Italian band to the pavilion in the park on a beautiful night just like this. And uh, you can see why it might become a destination place. So when uh, Colonel J.C. Woodward bought it about 1890, he did refurbish all this, but uh, we'll come a little while later to something else he did, a heart-shaped lake where you could still go hand in hand and walk around the lake too following that evening meal and a dance session or so. Any questions about the hotel at this point? It's item number two in your booklet there if you want to look at it. Was it mainly used in the summer or was it year-round? 
It was open year-round, and apparently the third floor was used as the ladies' dormitory for Holbrook College, which we're about to talk about. You'll see that uh, they built two men's dormitories, and they apparently used that third floor as a fall and winter dormitory for the ladies that attended Holbrook College. Can talk about the number of restrooms, bathrooms? Wasn't the uh, usual thing at the time, but each um, floor had two restrooms, and they both had both hot and cold running water. That's why they could charge $2 a night, I guess, instead of $1. <laughs> Was it built into the hill or does it sit right on top here? It's set on top. Right, right where this substation is. Burned in 1920. Does anybody in the crowd remember the Manor House apartments? They ran down something terrible, didn't they, toward the last four or five years that were here. But it was a rather imposing structure, too, not as imposing as this. But it's a beautiful place for it. You can imagine if you had this vegetation removed, how pretty it would be. Let's walk to the site of Holbrook College. We're at the foot of High School Hill, and before it was High School Hill, it was Holbrook College Hill. How many transcendentalists do we have in the crowd? <laughs> the Holbrook College was um, founded when the Found City Improvement Company, largely Colonel J.C. Woodward, thought it would be interesting and help business if they had a college in the community. Of course, it would raise the educational standards in the community, but also it would bring all those students in, and they would need uh, boarding houses at the time, or dormitories, and it would call for some restaurants in the vicinity. So they went to Lebanon, Ohio. It's about 30 miles east and north of Cincinnati, very close to that big uh, amusement park up there. What's that called? King's Island. King's Island. And they talked to the Holbrook family. The Holbrook family went all the way back to the Lyceum movement. In Boston in early days, old Josiah Holbrook I, and we're talking like uh, late 1700s here, founded the Lyceum Movement. At the time of the Civil War, there were over 300 Lyceum organizations in the United States. What they did was uh, carry a stable of speakers around, inspirational speakers, and people like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, that type of people, who were transcendentalists, I understand. I'm going to try to find out just exactly what a transcendentalist is sometime. Thoreau's deep enough for me, I think. But uh, So they talked to... Uh, the Holbrook family, by this time Albert Holbrook, uh, was in charge of their normal college there in uh, Lebanon, Ohio, which was the largest in the United States, had over 3,500 graduates, I think, over the 20 years he was there, so a very prestigious institution, a so-called normal school, named after the uh, French normal schools, which mostly trained teachers, but they had uh, other curriculum, too. They had a music curriculum and a chemistry curriculum and so forth at Holbrook College. Bobby's uh, holding a picture of the first college, which uh, admitted its first class September the 4th, 1893, with an enrollment of 100 students, nine departments. Not only had uh, music, like I mentioned, but also business, 
military science and art. There were many distinguished graduates of the school, but probably the most distinguished was Hassie K. Gresham, who was principal person that uh, Gresham Middle School is named after. From 1919 to 1947, uh, probably the most influential educator of that period, at least, in Knoxville. Another was uh, Erastus Eugene, or E.E. E. Patton, who later was the state senator and then later yet was mayor of the city of Knoxville. So those two were graduates of uh, Holbrook Normal. And none less than uh, Cordell Hall was a graduate of the Lebanon School before he went on to law school. So they had some famous graduates. Now the college lasted about 10 years and then uh, found that there was a young school up at uh, Jefferson City some of you may have heard of Carson Newman. That was just a little bit too much to compete with, so enrollment fell, and they weren't, uh, didn't have a major endowment to keep them going. So they laid vacant for about a year, and then the County Board of Education talked to the people, the Fountainhead Improvement Company that owned the property, and bought it and established Central High School here in 1906. We just had our 100th anniversary. Larry Smith, chairman of it in 2006, a wonderful occasion down at uh, Tennessee Theater one night. And Central High School, as you know, had many prestigious uh, graduates, including Charlotte Davis and uh, <laughs> Bob Davis, one of the better basketball players. And, and Stick Smith, would Stick Smith please hold his hand up? He's gained a little weight since those days, so they don't call him Stick anymore, but one of the better basketball players that ever went through the school. If my dear bride was here, she'd say, please don't start talking about Hassie K. Gresham. It, it'll last all night. So I'll try to forego that, but uh, she was the sort of person who walked in a room and had charisma, so you instantly paid attention, and not only attention, but uh, respect. I think Charlotte told me not long ago that she still can't walk through a mall or a parking lot and pass a bunch of things thrown around on the ground. Miss Gresham didn't allow that. If she saw you walk past paper on campus, she'd say, please go back and pick that up. We don't allow that on our campus. One um, day she was sitting in her office and somebody was singing a very loud voice out on campus underneath her office window. And she said to her student assistant, who is that out there? Go out and find out who that is. So they went out. It was a young man on campus singing at the top of his voice. And she called him in the office and said, how come you're singing on campus? It's not terribly a good place to do that. He said, well, I just like to sing. She said, well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. Uh, next week, Wednesday's chapel program, you're going to lead the singing. And he said, oh, Miss Gresham, I couldn't do that. My knees would collapse and I'd just fall backwards and it wouldn't be possible. She said, well, Roy, you're going to sing next week. And if you fall, I'll be there to catch you. And Roy did sing next week. It was Roy Acuff. And it turned out he kind of liked it. So he led the singing from there out. But later in life, he gave Miss Gresham credit for um, getting him on the stage the first time. So... We might be without the king of country music except for Hassie K. Gresham. Um, incidentally, he was 
a star athlete in baseball, basketball, and football. Uh, I asked Coach Elton not long ago if anybody in school history ever had 12 letters except Roy Acuff, and he said, so far as I know, nobody ever did. So that's another claim to fame. Everybody impressed? <laughs> Let's walk down the hill now. Be, be very careful about crossing here. Thank goodness traffic's kind of calm now. We want to cross and walk down the right side of Hotel Avenue. Yeah, the Outfellas Hall was the, the third floor was our first school, other than Smithwood. Smithwood School was first. It was about 1903, I think, they had the first uh, three grades that attended school there in the Oddfellas Hall. And on the first floor was our first library, before the one in the park, um, the White Block Building, many of you may remember. Our first library was on the first floor of the Oddfellas Hall. I haven't been able to find any history of that Oddfellas Hall. It was a fraternal organization like the Masons, and of course not a lot of history is published to those organizations, but if anybody had a grandfather or great uncle or whatever that attended there, I'd sure like to talk to them sometime to learn about Oddfellas. They evidently performed a great civic service by providing space for those two school and library. Fountain City Methodist Church is our first church in Fountain City. And um, as you'll notice from the historic sign here, Ms. Uh, Joyce Sterling is the historian for Fountain City Methodist Church, and she did an awful lot of work to get one of these historic signs placed here. You'll notice it says um, that they purchased the property in 1851. And um, built a church on this property. Earlier there had been a log cabin church in 1828 that faced the uh, present lake. There was no lake there at the time. And in 1845 they built a white frame church still facing the lake. Uh, present lake, not there at the time. So when they purchased this campground, um, strangely um, religious services were no longer held in the park as they had been before. In 1855, um, the railroad came through, connected um, Atlanta to Roanoke and Richmond, and it um, had a branch line that ran through Inskip of all places. So Reverend John Inskip, an evangelist from New York State, came in and established a campground at Inskip and stole the business that direction. Um, well enough, I guess. That was years of the Great Revival. The present sanctuary uh, behind you here was built in 1957, but the uh, one that was built in 1891 is the one that you may remember. Remember the circular building that's pictured in your booklet there? Um, my age group, um, I got out of high school just at the end of World War II. I guess half of us were married or baptized or whatever in that um, beautiful sanctuary. It had wonderful acoustics too, so they tried their best to save it and to put up the new sanctuary and it just wasn't practical. It was uh, too far gone. But Fountain City Methodist is uh, 
one of our biggest, most, most active churches, and Down City has been known as the, the city of churches. If you look at Natalie Hicks' book, 18, uh, 1968, you'll find uh, all the churches pictured in that. And uh, after Found City Methodist, you had Smithwood Baptist and Shannadale Presbyterian, too, and up towards Smithwood. Next stop is just down the street, so we'd stop in front of the uh, circular door down there. This is the famous oval door. How many of you ever stopped at uh, Doc Talent's for ice cream or soda? As I remembered, and I checked with two of my classmates, a fountain Coke here was 10 cents, and ice cream soda 15 cents, and Sunday 25 cents. And uh, poor Doc Talbot, he seemed like he did pretty well, but if you bought anything as insignificant as an ice cream soda or Sunday, he still gave you a treat, and particularly if you had an RX field, a prescription field, or bought a tube of toothpaste or something, You'd find when you got home that you had a package of chewing gum or a package of peanuts or something. You used the old-fashioned storekeeper's method. Uh, I would show up maybe 8 o'clock in the morning to go to work across the street, and he already would have his little dustpan and swept all the way down to the corner. Um, and his dustpan was just a box lid, a little tiny broom that he swept all the way down there. So... He was from the old school, but as, as dear as he could be, just a gentleman of the first order. And uh, this was where he held court. The uh, kids after school stopped in for their Coke or ice cream soda when they had quarter in their pocket. Dr. Talon had, long toward the end of my practice, I retired uh, 96, I guess late 80s within two weeks time he had two break-ins here so i came in one day and he had a little rope that kind of roped off the soda area from the pharmaceutical area and he said come back here i want to show you my burglar alarm on the back door he had stacked um, five gallon tin or metal buckets eight or ten of them same line he had them filled with rocks, and he had things piled on top of that. And it was all roped in, so that if anybody had opened that back door, there would have been noise for at least 15 minutes, all that stuff collapsing. And I'm sure the burglar would have been cleared down the pipe by then. So that was his idea of a burglar alarm. But apparently it worked. He never had a break-in after that that I'm aware of. Now, we mentioned Roy Eckford earlier. Across the street here was Sherman Wallace's barbershop. In Roy Acuff's time, about 18, whoops, 1920, the barbershop faced uh, Broadway. Later it was right here and facing us. And uh, Roy would stop there after school. Sherman Wallace uh, was a pretty good fiddler himself, but uh, the community band would stop there. And particularly Charlie Duncan. How many of you remember Charlie Duncan, the shoeshine man? Every time Roy Aker would come to town, he'd come into the barbershop and get his hair trimmed, but additionally, he and uh, 
Charlie Duncan would have a rag popping contest, and and Charlie always said, "Well, I really had more rhythm than Roy did, but I never told him." So he kind of picked that going on, maybe. Roy then would walk down to uh, where Smut Smith's record services occupies now, where um, John I. Copeland had the very first garage and service station out of downtown Knoxville. Copeland was a bachelor and uh, kind of an unkempt John R. Neal type of an individual. He wore sort of leather outfit, buttoned up the front. And they said that John I. Copeland uh, changed that outfit every Easter whether he needed to or not. But he was a genius. Um, Bob Johnson told me and didn't mind if I told you. He was third grader and math just never had meant much to him so he wasn't making good grades in math and he came in with another bad grade card and his dad said, Bob, one more of these with this kind of grades and you're going to see John Copeland. So lo and behold, Bob came back with poor grades in math the next month and took him down there and um, Bob said in just a few sessions, maybe three or four sessions, he made math manual for me, and I never had a problem clear through. So Bob founded a big general insurance agency out of Halls and did pretty well all these years, and he gave Copeland credit for that. He was um, eccentric, but a genius apparently, so he was born in Wheat, Tennessee, which is where Oak Ridge uh, National Labs and so forth are now occupied, of course, behind the secrecy fence. But... Um, he had left Wheat early on, and uh, they say in the back of this garage down here, which is not only his business, but also his sleeping quarters, he had a beautiful library of books, and he was talking about space travel and trips to the moon and so forth way back in the 30s and 40s before anybody else but uh, Jules Verne had even talked about it. So John Copeland was another of our characters in Fountain City. Let's go a few feet further now to... Can you picture above you here? I'll try to talk as loud as I can against this traffic. This um, beautifully restored by Larry and Sharon Smith within the year. Larry, what did you say some of this lumber dated back to? 18? We did a cross section of the lumber, 1691. Yeah. 1691. <laughs> the building was built in building built in 1890. I found a recent picture that shows Franklin's store was here first and then later moved up to the location where the creamery is. I'm researching that for an article now, but uh, John and then later his son, Mac Franklin, were uh, some of the first grocers in Fountain City. But uh, the institution I want you to remember is one of the dearest people ever lived in Fountain City. This was a balcony up here, all exposed, and I'm going to pass the picture around. It shows uh, ferns that go over the balcony. They drop down, my memory is, uh, almost to your head. You had to about a walk under it almost. As you came uh, down Hotel Avenue, and I did for my four years uh, in high school, I walked from here to Adair Gardens and back every morning 
right up this hill. If you dawdled here in the station, this was all called the station because the dummy line did end here. Uh, Dossie Cooper would lean over the balcony up there and she'd say, boys, go home. You know your dad doesn't want you stopping here in the station. They do all kinds of bad things down there. They drink Coca-Colas, they smoke cigarettes, just all kinds of bad things. I, I hope Dossie never knew what went on in later years down here. I remember a few of those occasions, don't you, David? <laughs> David reads an audience here. Dossie was a character. A friend of mine moved here from St. Louis when she was in high school years, and they were driving along Broadway when it was just two lanes, and it was taking forever. Traffic just was hardly moving at all. They got up to this intersection, and Dossie Cooper was out in the middle of two-lane Broadway with a dustpan and a broom cleaning up after things. She considered herself the mayor of Fountain City, and when uh, Congressman Duncan's father was mayor of the city of Knoxville, he annexed Fountain City in 1962, and Dossie called uh, Mayor Duncan up not long after it was annexed and said, Mayor, you've taken my job away from me. And he said, well, Miss Cooper, tell me about it. What, what's the problem? She said, I've been supervising this road crew out here and cleaning up this street for many, many years, and you've taken my job away from me. He said, well, Miss Dobby, just consider you still have that job. Don't give it up at all. So she, uh, this is Dossie's picture. And if any of you know descendants of Dossie Cooper, and I've never found one, and could find me a better picture of Miss Dossie Cooper, has to have this little hat on her head, because that's the only way I ever saw her. And I'd sure love to talk to whoever that is that has it. So um, she was our unofficial mayor. The next page there shows you what the station building looked like originally when the Fountain City Land Company first uh, built it. You're looking at the back of it here. And you notice that inscription says, University of Tennessee Fountain City. This is number seven illustration. And you see those coal frames there where they're growing plants? All we've ever been able to figure, and I've talked to the historians out here prior to my time, is that it was an agricultural experiment station, and they grow, grew some of the plants. There were a number of flower beds in the park. For years and years, there was a lily pond just behind the building here, and the stonework may still be there. But it had some beautiful uh, flowers and shrubs in the park. Where you see um, Edward Jones and Company, there was a seamy side to Fountain City, no longer, of course, but back in the uh, 1960s, Knoxville Journal, the morning paper, had a headline that said, Local Printer Caught Counterfeiting. There was a man named Sprankle that had a lithography shop there in that building, and um, he was making some really good $20 bills, but he got caught. He served eight years over it, but uh, it's a really good story. He got religion when he was in prison, came back and became a spokesman in about every church in town. Is what can happen if you go wrong, and, and he did go wrong, but he righted himself, so Mr. Frankel's well known around town at that time. So that was one little seamy story I can tell you about Fountain City. We, we just uh, 
city of churches, so we had very little seamy side to us. But we did have a counterfeiter at one time, right there in the station building. Let's walk to the park now, to the lake that is. Can you picture Fountain City Lake with a white picket fence around it like you see there in the picture of item number eight? And with gas lights, there were gas lights that uh, surrounded the lake and it actually was connected to the park. They once were under the same deed. There was a wide walkway about midway of Hotel Avenue that connected the park with the lake and just to the side of that walkway there was a carousel run by Dossie Cooper and her husband, who died early. She was a widow for over 30 years, I think. But uh, that walkway connected the lake and the park, so evidently, if you paid admission to one or the other, you could uh, make seven home in both of them. That picture shows, uh, it's like an 1895 uh, costumes that people are wearing. And uh, there are early pictures of canoes on the lake, and there even was a diving board down here at the end of it. Can you tell from this perspective that it is heart-shaped? It shows easily if you're up on uh, Gentry Griffey Hill looking down on it. Um, my mother and dad, when I was a child, lived... Um, out in Burlington, Magnolia was a, a fashionable part of town at the time. Their apartment wasn't fashionable, but they would uh, catch the trolley. By that time, the dummy line had uh, ceased, but it was standard gauge track, so it was a trolley that ran on the same track the dummy line did. So after 1905, you originally had a trolley and then later streetcars. They would catch the streetcar in Burlington come down Magnolia Avenue on that streetcar and transfer at uh, Central Avenue. And this was a Sunday afternoon activity to walk around the park and, and enjoy the lake and the park scenery. The uh, lake was drained thanks to some helpful grants uh, from the city, the state, and the federal governments in eight, 1985. And... Um, some of the riprap was replaced and the uh, fountain was refurbished and so forth. So we all want to be thankful and make contributions too to the Lions Club for what they do here. They spearheaded that whole um, refurbishment of the lake. It was drained and um, found a, a lot of artifacts in the bottom of it. One of our Fountain City bottle collectors found a uh, Coke bottles clear back to the first year Cokes were made, which was 1903, so um, it's a very historic place. Now, the lake was designed by an uh, engineer by the name of Phillips, who had also designed the Fountainhead Railway. He um, worked for Colonel J.C. Woodward, and Colonel J.C. Woodward we're going to talk about in a minute, but um, he built his son a house that's now uh, buried inside of all the remodeling that's been done at Gentry Griffey Mortuary. His name was Hugh Woodward, and um, he and his father owned the Knoxville Business College early on. They had a professor on staff that was a professor of accounting, and he said, um, J.C. and Hugh, I, I believe I could 
do a better textbook than we have for our accounting classes now. And lo and behold, he did write a better textbook, and they got the idea to publish that textbook. So it was the beginning of what was known as the Southwestern Publishing Company that was established in Knoxville, but Hugh moved to Cincinnati and took the publishing company with him, and the Southwestern Publishing Company still exists. It was bought out by Thompson, T-H-O-M, without a P-S-O-N, that big Canadian firm that does some, so much data retrieval type things and still is a major publisher and that accounting textbook is still in publication about its 50th edition I guess so um, J.C. Woodward and Hugh not only established what became a destination place in Fountain City they bought and refurbished the hotel they um, built the lake impounded the lake and made it a destination place Here's a very color, color picture going to pass that around Hobby. Where you see the little pump house right in here, an early owner of the um, Woodward House, after Woodward left for Cincinnati, Gideon Morgan, grandfather of the Bondurant family, Barbara Pilo, our city councilman, is one of the Bondurants, and Son of A. Bondrant uh, Graves, who directs the Shannonham Choir at Shannondale uh, Retirement Home, both Bondrants. So Dr. Gideon Morgan owned the house, and he had the water tested that came out of this spring, which had uh, many more uh, gallons per minute flow than the one in the, in the park there. And he found that it had medicinal properties, so if you want to pass that picture around, this is an early picture of what he planned as a um, bottling works to market this water that was supposed to be as good, at least, as Little Springs, which was known throughout the country. Little Springs Water actually won uh, awards at the exposition in St. Louis for the content of their water. Now, just over the Cedar Lane intersection here, where uh, Target was for years and where Kroger is going to be soon, almost is now, this beautiful mansion called Park View was built by uh, J.C. Woodward. I've never been able to determine he was uh, too young for the Civil War, so he didn't get his currency in the Civil War, and apparently he was merely a Kentucky colonel. But he should have been, because his money that he spent here in Fountain City came from a subdivision in Lexington, Kentucky, known as Woodward Heights. How many of you ever been to Rupp Arena to see a basketball game? Kind of an unpleasant memory for me. The two times I went, we came back with defeats. <laughs> About everybody that goes into Rupp Arena does get defeated, I guess, by the Big Blue, or did for years. So Colonel Woodward owned uh, all of Woodward Heights. It has a historic house uh, named Botherham that um, was there during the Civil War, and over 30 houses. So he had a giant auction sale. I have an ad that came from that auction sale. And I'd love to know the connection, why he decided that Knoxville was a better place than Lexington. It turned out well for us, at least. So this is Colonel J.C. Woodward. And his home was known... Uh, not just locally, but nationally for its beauty. 
How many remember the Williams house? You can see all that beautiful terracotta works. When um, mom was a teenager, she grew up in Old Fountain City, born in 1900 and uh, just passed away in 2005. Mom was 105 years old when we lost her. But um, she was invited, one of the real feathers in her cap, to a square dance at this Woodward Wood Williams home. It was held on the second floor there. The Prudens owned it at the time. Thomas Pruden was a big coal mine operator. In fact, Pruden Mines are named after him. And she said it was just wonderful how that giant ballroom on the second floor was decorated. He was good friends to um, Bombs the Florist, which was Fountain City Business Park was Bombs Florist. So not only was that a beautiful occasion, but one of the highlights of the whole season was when the daughter of um, Thomas Pruden married Dr. Herbert Acuff. Many of you may remember Acuff Clinic downtown. Dr. Herbert Acuff was the president of the American Medical Association and traveled worldwide representing medicine and uh, extremely good surgeon, apparently. He had tremendous practice, but the highlight of one of the social seasons was the time when uh, Lola Pruden and Dr. Acuff were married here in this home. It was a shame we lost it, but um, I've talked to several historic preservationists who visited. It was double-walled, and they said the exterior walls weren't all that bad, but the interior walls were just crumbling, so it probably wasn't possible to save it. I uh, tell myself that, and yet I think it's one of the greatest losses ever out here. And I hope we can maintain the Dempster Francis house across the street from that location, and it has been restored, and it appears that we will. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you very much. Dr. Tumlin, we thank you for this tonight. I know it was a, a thing that you didn't want to do to be recorded. But it was very important that we got this on tape. So we do appreciate the extra effort you went to. And we really appreciate the great crowd tonight. We'd love for you to be a part of Town Hall if you're not. We usually meet the second Monday of the month at Church of the Good Shepherd just past Central High School on Jacksboro Pike at 7. Again, we thank you so much for being with us tonight. You've been listening to a Fountain City History audio walking tour. The Knox County Public Library is pleased to offer this recording in our podcast series. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, Copyright 2009 by Knox County Public Library.